Welcome to the Lover's Hole. You're with Mike and Ian, and we're reading through the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. We're right up to chapter eight here in Treason's Harbor. Ian, bring us up to date. Well, Mike, last time Jack and his crew had sailed back to Suez. They had left behind Hassan and the Turks and they were marching across the desert back to Tina. Along the way, they were robbed by marauding Bedouins in this kind of Fantasia show fake manoeuvre and barely made it alive back aboard the dromedary, but nonetheless, they set sail for Malta. Jack was worried about what he's going to write in his official letter and just how the commander-in-chief was going to receive the news of this failed mission. So, Mike, this week... Jack's going to make that report. We're going to hear how his message comes across and we're going to hear what the commander-in-chief thinks. Jack, meanwhile, is going to get a surprise. Stephen and Mrs. Fielding, well, their relationship's going to deepen as Stephen's continuing with his work to deceive the French intelligence networks in Malta. Jack, though, has a difficult loss to work through. Meanwhile, we are also going to take some time out this episode to talk to historian Philip Ball, who joined us for an interview to talk about the Napoleonic Wars, talk about Nelson's band of brothers in the Mediterranean, the Ottoman Empire, and the patchy history of amphibious operations between the British Navy and the British military. But that's all to come, Mike. We've got plenty to work on this week. Let's get started. All right. Thanks, Ian. Well, we, as you say, we join Jack as he reports aboard the flagship to see the commander-in-chief, Ives, Admiral Ives, and, and deliver his report. But he has to wait a little bit, and, and the Admiral's kind enough to hand him the Navy list, the most recent edition. And Jack scans it and mm-hmm. sees that he's moved well up past halfway now due to the deaths of a number of admirals and captains. They've had a, a tough time, both in, in terms of battle losses and, and disease Um, And Admiral Ives comments as they come together that even after a lot of people who should never have commanded ships have been removed from the list, the top half of the list is still full of what he deems incompetent subordinates. He's saying, you know, I can't get much done because look at what I have to pick from. And and Jack, sadly, it kind of hands him his big official letter and tells him that, unfortunately, his report of his mission is unlikely to change the Admiral's opinion. The Admiral picks up Jack's weighty dispatch, looks at it, and exclaims, Zunes! We'll come back to Zunes in a minute. Give me a pracy, says the Admiral. A what, sir? cried Jack. A succinct abridgment, a summary, an abstract, for God's sake. You remind me of a half-witted midshipman I took aboard the Ajax once, in kindness to his father. Have you no nous? I asked him. No, sir, says he. I did not know it would be wanted aboard ship, but shall certainly purchase some when next ashore. <laughs> and I think in reply, Jack says, ha ha ha, sir. Right. <laughs> so a couple, couple of nice little bits of Patrick O'Brien vocabulary for us there. Zunes is an exclamation expressing surprise or indignation. And my, I, I can remember reading this in, in Shakespeare when I was studying Shakespeare at school. The Oxford Dictionary uses actually this sentence of O'Brien's as an example. It's uh, what you might call a minced oath. It's a sort of Baudelaireized um, curse found in Romeo and Juliet. It's a reference to God's wounds. So people said zoons instead of wounds. Google Engram says its peak usage was at 1807. So Jack was exactly right. Not many people in 1812 were saying it anymore. 
So nous, yeah, another great word here. And interestingly, it comes from the Greek word for mind or intellect, but it's also used for common sense, practical intelligence. So the animal's saying, you know, these people don't have this common sense, practical intelligence. Fascinatingly, also Engram high in 1826. However, that high was matched in 2017 and it's been rising. So I don't know about you, Ian. Are you seeing a rise in common sense and practical intelligence or just people using ancient Greek words? Uh, I have a hypothesis and I'm going to keep it to myself. (laughs) (laughs) See you on Twitter. (laughs) That's right. You know, Jack may not have this, but he does have an excellent abridgment, which ends up, and so, sir, having made a cuck of it, if you will allow me the expression, I came away, my only consolation being that there were no casualties apart from the dragoman. And the admiral nicely says, well, clearly the intelligence was at fault and they'll have to look into it. So kind of a nice feeling. Yeah. It, it, it does. It sounds like in the full dialogue there, the admiral is not holding Jack responsible for this at all. No. And we get this moment of thinking, yeah, Jack, Jack's continuing his, his growth of kind of steady, positive relationships with admirals. But Mike, we get a real turn for the worse here. Almost in a matter-of-fact way, the Admiral tells Jack that the surprise will have to be laid up or sold out of the service. And he goes on to describe in in perfectly logical, perfectly detached terms that even though she's a wonderful ship and a sailor, she's old. She's an anachronism. She's too small and weak by current standards. And Jack raises his protest, as of course he would, to say, well, there are smaller ships still in service but Jack already knows that this, I think. The average British frigate at this time would have been an 18-pounder with 38 guns. That's double the weight of metal of surprise. And we know from fortune of war that the Americans are building really heavy frigates with much heavier broadsides even than that. So to begin with, Jack seems to take it well. He says, oh, I don't mind it. Not at all. It was understood when I brought the Worcester out that this spell in the Mediterranean was to be a mere parenthesis until the Blackwater should be ready. And Mike, now the ground shifts under our feet. The Blackwater, said Sir Francis, surprise. Yes, sir. I had a firm promise of her from the North American station as soon as she's ready. From whom? From the First Secretary himself, sir. Ah, indeed, said the Admiral looking down. I see. I see. And Mike, this doesn't sound great. This sounds like our friend Ray meddling with the with the fortunes of Jack. This sounds like all this this sympathy he's got with the Admiral is undercut by this really grim news that he's having this surprise taken from him and that his promised Blackwater's not coming. However, the Admiral says he's got some jobs for the surprise before she goes home and invites Jack to dine aboard. Yeah, this this is boy, I mean, this hit me and, and it and it kind of continues. You know, Jack has a decent dinner there with everybody. And O'Brien tells us he has kind of every reason to be happy, but rowing back to the ship after dinner, O'Brien writes, sorrow for his ship welled up and nearly choked him. Mm. So Jack starts thinking about, yeah, all his many years. I mean, he was on her as a midshipman. He's thinking about how wonderful she sails, how she has never, ever failed him. And then O'Brien says the idea of her rotting away in some foul creek and then being broken up or sold out of the service to be cut down into a creeping merchant man was more than he could bear. 
If that galley had been what it seemed, he would have bought her himself to preserve her from such a fate. So Jack really, really attacked the surprise here. And then he goes on thinking, you know, not only the surprise, but this incredible crew that he's now got together, all their experience, how well they know each other, that he's got virtually no need for flogging with his crew. And again, Brian puts it so well that Jack is thinking about this great relief not to be righteously indignant and perpetually holier than everyone else in the ship. You know, Jack's thinking, I know them, they know me. And then it goes so far as to say that before Poolings was promoted and so many of the hands were drafted away, he had the finest ship's company in the squadron, if not in the entire service. Boy, <sighs> this is this is you know pretty pretty wonderful stuff and Jack is looking at all this you know essentially being taken away from him and he you know he decides he's not going to tell the men until it's absolutely necessary everybody's back there working to get surprised ready to go out again and he returns to the ship and, and he gets distracted with all the minor problems that everybody's got for him as they're all trying to get her ready to sail and uh, you know, he also, I, I think he's saved because they say, you know, the post came in, all the posts while we're gone, but they won't give it to us because it's closed. And he's like, Bondin, get my barge. You know, we're 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 going to go over there and we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to get the post. So uh, Jack's having a tough time. He is. He is. And Mike, this reminds me a bit, as, as we think of Patrick O'Brien as being the, the author of the Behaviour Lab, this reminds me a bit of the, the the model of the stages of grief, you know, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross idea that we go through, what is it, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I think Jack's kind of getting through anger and into a bit of bargaining now. So he's he's on a bit of a grief journey dealing with this news of the uh, the the end of the surprise's career as a naval frigate. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Ian, I, and and I think we'll see it. It kind of comes and goes. It's you know he's going along and then it hits him, and then he's going along and then it hits him worse. And yeah, this is I know it was it's starting to get to me and and continues to do so. Yeah, yeah, me too. So meanwhile. Stephen's gone ashore. He's dealt with all of his patients, as, as we read, like a conscientious surgeon. And then he picks up with his other conscientious duty, which is his intelligence-led connection with Laura Fielding. He walks up the dark passage to her house and thinks, what a cutthroat place it is, to be sure. As silent as death. Ooh. And my, <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty dark simile. <laughs> Laura, though, she's very happy to see him and asks if he's been shipwrecked, <laughs> looking at his homemade sailcloth jacket. She says, you are usually so point device. And that's uh, a, a literary term for being very uh, very correct or very precise. I think, Mike, that Engram tells us that 1805 and 1822 were peak usages of this phrase point device. So well done, O'Brien, again. Right. Stevens actually heaps praise upon this you know, roughly made coat with the tapes. Um he says that an older woman saw it um, and gave him a coin telling him not to spend it on drink. <laughs> so he's clearly looking like a bit, of, a bit of a vagrant in this coat. And Stephen goes on to tell Laura about how he'd lost all of his things um, that were on the camels when the Bedouins came raiding. And she's got this little supper laid out and he really can't stop himself from reaching out and almost unconsciously eating her supper. And this actually causes embarrassment for him. And O'Brien points out that Stephen feeling embarrassed is pretty rare. 
Right, right. He's driving, talking so randomly and everything else. I think he's perhaps embarrassed by his dress, embarrassed by, you know, he's been hungry and he's eating these things. Perhaps embarrassed about his feelings about Laura Fielding. I don't know. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, Laura fills him in on all her handler's activities, what's happened since, you know, Stephen's been gone. And she's now, you know, she used to be a bit reticent, but now she's much more open talking about the descriptions of the people, all the information she's heard. And she brings out her husband's latest letter. And there's this fascinating description where, you know, Brian describes Stephen looking at the letter and all these things going through his mind. He's thinking, ah, you know, yeah, her husband's dead. The letters forge. Lassure is probably the French agent. Ray hasn't caught him yet. Mm, wouldn't it be better to feed the French false information than to just drag this guy in and have him shot? Uh, we better do that fast. Hmm. Once Fielding's death is known, Lassure is going to want to have Laura killed because he's he's not going to have any more use for her. And she now knows way too much. And O'Brien writes, all this passed through his mind with the utmost rapidity, never reaching the stage of words while he looked at the letter. And I, yeah. I was fascinated by this idea of, you know, Stephen as such you know, we, we remember post-captain, you know, having that reptilian look, you know, he's such a consummate intelligence agent and, and such a brilliant man that this stuff just all happens at once. And as this is happening, the other thing that's kind of going on for Stephen is he's more certain of all this than he's ever been before. And, yeah. you know, with these strong feelings he has for Laura, he now has, O'Brien writes, a far greater sense of urgency. And I take that to mean that, you know, he really wants to poison the French intelligence quickly and carefully. He wants to get Laura to safety in time. So Laura goes on to give him a very accurate description of Lesur and says that another agent, one of you know Lesur's accomplices, here, told, told her that Stephen was not supposed to be on that Red Sea trip. He was supposed to have been p- replaced by another man. And we remember that with the admiral talking to Jack. And so somebody's you know operating behind the scenes. We assume perhaps Ray, right? And yeah. O'Brien writes, uh, and this is kind of, I guess, from Stephen's perspective, from all she had said, it became distressingly clear that some, at least, meaning some of these French agents, had committed the common blunder and sometimes mortal sin of underestimating the power of a woman. And that even if Lesur did not know that she had recognized him, it was obvious that she knew so much about his network that he could not possibly tolerate her defection so uh, a couple of things here one pretty ominous that you know the heat's turned yeah. up things are going to happen and and on short order it sounds like and then i think for us and for our listeners to take heed this this very important common blunder and and sometimes mortal sin of underestimating the power of a woman so Thank you. Thank you, Patrick O'Brien. And this is this is wisdom for the ages. Yeah, it surely is. And it, it funny, it points me right back to the beginning of the book where the very early interactions with Laura Fielding, we are very clearly pointed out that yes. she's a she's a, 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 a smart and independent thinker in her own right. Um, and th- this makes her different, I think, from the way the Louisa Wogan character worked out. Louisa Wogan's character was really all, all about the, I think, the, the the backstory and the bad position that she was in. Um, but she certainly wasn't an innocent. And Laura Fielding's got this quality of being both g- genuinely innocent of having 
you know, been involved in espionage by choice, but nonetheless is an absolutely kind of resourceful and, as you say, powerful person in her own right, which I think makes us care even more about the jeopardy that could be coming her way. <laughs> mm, but maybe also that le- less you are to watch his step. Yeah, for sure. So, Mike, we've talked about the the grief attached to potentially losing the surprise. The surprise, which we've said before, is a character in the whole story arc of the whole canon. We get another bit of characterization of a, an inanimate object, and it's one that I'm interested in here. Um, Stephen sees his cello in the corner and smiles and says he longed for her on the voyage. And Laura goes straight for the fact that he's personified the cello. Laura's surprised that he thinks of this, as, as, as is written, masculine, deep voice, perhaps unshaven instrument, as a she. And I think that this, it's really interesting, this idea of personifying a cello. I, somebody who plays the cello, I, I read stories where, where cellos are mentioned, and I th- it is quite common for people to personify the instrument as female because um, it's almost the size of a human. It's got this very curvy, voluptuous shape. But I don't think the the characteristic voice of the instrument is necessarily just female, but it's it's certainly very common. I, th- I think it's an interesting thing to personify the instrument at all because I think there's a close partnership between a player and an instrument. I don't think that every player of a musical instrument would would regard the instrument that they have at their disposal as a as a person as a character. But it was it's clearly important to Stephen. It's clearly also a, another signal, like we have when Jack and Stephen are playing music together. It's another signal of how much uh, music carries the emotional weight of these books. And it's, again, no coincidence that this comes in the context of Stephen being in the company of Laura herself, who Stephen really can't hide his his, his physical attraction towards. So he he tries to change the subject at first. He says, well, let's play the piece that we crucified last time. And then unwrapping his cello, he says, man or woman, what a coil there is between them. He tuned the cello, reflecting upon his feelings for her. And here we have it. Her very strong desire, of course, but also tenderness, esteem, liking, and amitié amoureuse carried to a higher degree than he had known before. Oh wow! It's a great, it's a great description, a very tender description of the the connection between him and Laura, and I think it's given extra poignancy by the fact that he attaches the female identity to his musical instrument as well, right. and th- this idea of a coil between them, the kind of the complex close connection that arises in this case between a man and a woman. You and I <laughs> went searching for a reference because this idea of uh, a romantic connection or a sexual connection being a coil sounded very poetic and we wondered if it might have come from somewhere else. We found a series of short stories called The Black Dog and Other Tales by an author called A.E. Coppard, published in 1923. And there's a short story called Huxley Rustum with a an interlude, a romantic interlude between a man and a woman. And it says that he, the male character, realised at once the enormity of the affront. His vulgar act had smashed the delicate little coil between them. So somebody else, at least in history, has picked up this idea of coil as a poetic symbol for the connection, for the intertwining between between two romantic characters. I wonder if O'Brien ever saw or read the Coppard piece. Maybe we'll never know. And, it, and it's interesting, and I'd love to have, especially if any of our listeners are French, to kind of weigh in on this term that's used there. 
as I, I tried to chase it down, but I'm sure I'm not getting the sense of the meaning here. But it seems to be, you know, the translation straightforward is loving friendship. But digging a little deeper, you know, it seems to be a very deep relationship, a very tight bond with no, you know, not necessarily the conventional sense of romance kind of written very broadly. So, you know, I saw it used in one place where they were talking about, you know, seniors who now have, you know, have kind of lost their lifetime spouses, now have this incredibly tight bond, you know, or very much a couple. Everybody knows they're a couple, but they do it their own way. So it may or may not be sexual and erotic, but it could be very passionate in many ways. So a fascinating thing that you kind of, I think you run into that every once in a while in language where you go, gosh, I'm not sure how you translate this. So, (laughs) Well, just like the Eskimos have 17 words for snow, God bless them. The French have many words for love. <laughs> right, right. You know, I remember thinking in my first beer garden, somebody trying to explain Schunkel to me as we were, you know, locking our elbows and drinking our beer oh, with yeah, this camaraderie. Yeah. And I thought, well, how do you put that in English? I don't know. I think I'll just drink my beer and enjoy the friendship here. <laughs> so in the morning after all of this, Stephen leaves Laura to her own devices, goes looking for a local water taxi. And doesn't notice that it's the captain's bargeman. It's Jack's bargeman who are calling out to him. And they're using this London waterman cry, up or down, sir. And Jack comes out and says he didn't realise Stephen was staying at the hotel. And Stephen offhandedly says, well, I slept with a friend. And Mike, we get this really sort of post-captain-esque moment of tension and maybe even worse between them. Because while... Jack was quite pleased that Stephen's behaviour was, as O'Brien puts it, giving countenance and justification (laughs) to his own infidelity, giving him some top cover. He was more disappointed because Jack had previously thought Stephen was removed from temptations. Jack likes to think of Stephen as somebody who has no vices. And in Jack's mind, that belief makes this apparent adultery on Stephen's part, although commonplace in others, even more heinous for somebody with Stephen's virtues, at least in Jack's eyes. So Jack's got a bit of edge about him when it says, not without malice, he asked if Stephen had seen all his letters, meaning that when he sees all of Diana's letters, um, Stephen might feel guilty. Well, Stephen does indeed go read his mail. He's got letters from Diana about her active social life, about Sophie and the kids kind of coming to town and staying there with her. Um, she tells him that Yagiello sends his love to Stephen and how she longs to see him. And Stephen reads many letters from naturalists with whom he corresponds. He got one from his man of business uh, telling him that he was far richer than he supposed, O'Brien writes. And he got the usual now ongoing anonymous letter telling him that Diana is deceiving him with Captain Yagiello and and describing them, you know, having sexual relationships behind the altar of the great church. And Stephen's wondering, hmm, so would this be a man writing this or would this be a woman writing this? And then he gets a letter from Sir Joseph Blaine, the chief of naval intelligence. And he's noting, and I and I love the subtleties here. They say that that Blaine and 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 Matron know each other so well that they can write about common things and send a myriad of messages. So Blaine makes a passing reference to Ray. You know, I I'm sure that by now you've met acting second secretary, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so the 
acting part tells Stephen, hmm, the fact that there's a little mention that he seems to stress this acting that Ray does not enjoy Blaine's full confidence. And this confirms Stephen's earlier decision not to share the matter with Laura Fielding with Ray, but to handle this by himself. Yeah, it's a really critical moment. I love this. And it's in a way, it's a bit of reassurance for me as the reader, because I know that Stephen is tempted to intervene and do something to protect Laura Fielding, because he knows that something could at any moment reveal her situation and and cause her usefulness in the eyes of the French deceased. But we know that Ray's a bad one, and Stephen doesn't know that. So I was really relieved <laughs> as a as a reader on Team Stephen to see this signal that he gets indirectly from Sir Joseph. So he's got a reason to keep not trusting Ray. Otherwise, this all sounds like yet more and more impending disaster. Stephen's summoned to the flagship by the Admiral, also to meet with a visiting wealthy and well-connected naturalist, introduced to him by Sir Hildebrand, the governor of Malta. Jack delivers the Admiral's summons and has Bonden and Killick get Stephen ready and uh, has them deliver him dry-footed. Before they arrive, Jack tells Stephen about the surprise. At first in this rather indirect sort of sailor's metaphor way, by saying they were going to wear a broom at the masthead. And seeing that Stephen doesn't understand, tells him in plain language. I I love this, Ian, that broom at the masthead. You know, we get these little naval allusions from O'Brien all the time. What is this broom at the masthead? Well, it's funny. It reminds me of the the, the time a couple of books ago when the surprise's previous captain had been killed in action and they painted the top sides a different colour. This is one of those signals that we're offered no explanation. O'Brien doesn't burden us with a, you know, having one character explain to another why we're carrying a broom at the masthead. And it's pretty obvious, but it, it means that the ship is ready to be disposed of or and, and sometimes it uh, it represented that the ship was for sale or for hire. And I think in modern times, ships have put a broom at the mast or in the case of the submarines, even a broom at the top of the periscope as a way of symbolizing that they've made a clean sweep in action, meaning that they've defeated all the enemies that they encounter. But that's not the case here. The broom means the ship is being swept out, ready to be handed over to a new uh, a new owner. And this is a sort of little light-hearted throwaway way of Jack telling Stephen the news about the surprise. But as Jack tells him this, Stephen sees a tear well in his eye. Stephen asks about the professional impact, and O'Brien says this was for want of any more adequate remark. And it's a very, very poignant moment. Stephen has been absolutely full of banter and zingers and rejoinders and whip-crack humour all the way through this book, but he hasn't got a quick turnaround. He hasn't got a quick, light-hearted, throwaway remark for Jack at this moment. He sees the consequences that that this holds for Jack. There is no professional impact, Jack thinks, since the Blackwater will be his next command. But Jack goes on to say, I cannot tell you how it wounds. And Mike, this is a real, ah, a real sad moment for Jack. He's clearly not all the way through the processing of the grief that he feels about the ship. No, this, yeah, for me, and this is this is it. I mean, I, I was feeling it before, but thinking about Jack, you know, sort of crying in front of his friend here and trying not to do this and talking about how much it wounds this. It's really, you know, I broke down here. This is like the death of a loved one or going through an unwanted divorce or something. I, I'm just really feeling with Jack here. My mirror neurons are all kicked in at this point. <laughs> oh, heck. 
Well, just in case our listeners are experiencing their own mirror neuron reaction and you want to process your grief along with Jack, let's take a few minutes to step away. We'll be right back in a minute. We're glad to have you all aboard and would love your support at patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash lovers hole. Help us defray some of the expenses of making the lovers hole and join us for some additional content. Welcome back. We hope you're feeling better after the break. We're going to pause our reading of Treason's Harbour for a moment or two. Um, We'd like to play for you an interview that Mike and I had a little while ago with our special guest, Philip Ball. So we wanted to talk some more about the context for Britain's war against France and against Napoleon, for the Mediterranean Command and Malta. And who better to talk to than somebody who researches and writes in the field? So we're really happy to welcome Philip Ball. Philip has a long-standing interest in military history. He's a published author on military history in the Napoleonic period. Phil's worked for a number of years in museums and in archaeology and in the heritage sector. Phil, I think it's right that you've got degrees from St. David's, from Leicester and from Birmingham universities. I have. And you're currently researching British amphibious operations in the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Phil, we're talking about Treason's Harbour. We're talking about Malta. But if we go back a little in the historical timeline, there's a pretty strong connection with Malta and Nelson, isn't there? There is, yes. Uh, As you may know, Nelson had a group of captains that were very uh, ship captains who were very close to him and had uh, fought alongside him at the Battle of the Nile and subsequently under his command in the Mediterranean and they became mm. known as the Band of Brothers. And uh, one of these brothers was a man called Alexander Ball. And uh, obviously, being called Ball myself, I, I've, I've always felt a, a connection to, to Alexander Ball, even though <laughs> I'm not related. So Malta is uh, is an island in the Mediterranean, and at the time, Britain was very much looking for bases in the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean was uh, of distinct strategic importance, shall we say. You've got the whole of the, the south coast of France, and Spain, and Italy that you can you can range around if you if you've got control of the Mediterranean. So one of Britain's war aims during this period was to gain control of the Mediterranean. At the beginning of the war, Malta was uh, ruled. And controlled by uh, the religious order, the Knights of St. John. Now, these are a, a, a group of people whose uh, origins go back to the Crusades. They uh, originally uh, protected pilgrims and ran hospitals in the Holy Land in Jerusalem. And over the years, they had been forced out, and uh, Malta was their last remaining stronghold. And uh, they were quite an archaic order by this point. They, they were militarily pretty much ineffectual. But they'd been running Malta for, for, for centuries, and the Maltese quite liked them. Hmm. In 1798, a man we may have heard of called Napoleon Bonaparte turned up, and um, he decided that he was going to take Malta for France. Uh, they could have been a, a, a loot element to his, uh, his motivation, but uh, he ousted the Knights of St. John very easily. I don't think they, there was even any fighting. I think pretty much he just turned up and they went, oh, all right, that's it. And they left. Hmm. So Malta, a highly religious uh, 
society found itself um, under the auspices of the French Republic, uh, something which they weren't very keen on. Uh, so when Bonaparte took the bulk of his army uh, over to Egypt to uh, begin his uh, his mad Oriental uh, crusade, the Maltese rose up in revolt and uh, the French garrison found itself bottled into Valletta, which is an immensely strong fortress and harbour. And after the Battle of the Nile, uh, the British thought that they would quite like Malta. So they didn't have enough resources themselves to, to, uh, to attack it at this point. There was a lot of other stuff going on. And uh, they sent a, a squadron of Portuguese ships. Uh, these, these Portuguese ships had mostly English captains. It was, it was a thing mm. that they did in those days. Uh, the Navy couldn't employ all of its captains at one point, so a lot of them went on half pay. And a good way to keep your money up and keep your experience up was to go and serve in a foreign Navy. And the Portuguese uh, was one of those navies that, that they served with. Obviously, Portugal was one of our oldest allies, so it made sense for uh, British captains to go and serve with the Portuguese fleet. Sure enough, there's a squadron of Portuguese uh, vessels uh, went and blockaded Valletta. Eventually, they're joined by uh, a British squadron under Sir Alexander Ball, and he sort of uh, he he liaises with the with the Maltese uh, insurgents, and he's trying to stop uh, supplies getting into into the, the French garrison at Valletta. And it goes on for some time. This siege. Uh, it's, it's not yeah. until 1800 that, uh, that Malta actually becomes British. But having become British, it remains British right up until about 1964. Phil, you mentioned Bonaparte. Um, it, it might be nice to roll back for a second and say, you know, why were the British at war with Napoleon in the first place? What, what started all this? Yes. Why were we at war with Bonaparte? Well, we weren't specifically at war with Bonaparte at this stage. In 1793, the French, for reasons that are entirely obscure, declared war on Great Britain. The previous year, they declared war on Austria and Prussia, who were the, uh, the preeminent military forces of the age. Um, that was largely to distract attention from the mess that was going on in France. The French Revolution was chaos. There were various competing factions within the convention that the, 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 uh, the, the Republican ruling body, like their parliament, and one of these groups decided that it would be really good for their image to declare war on Austria and Prussia. So they did that. It didn't go very well. Uh, the only thing that saved the Republic from complete destruction was uh, a thing called the Cannonade at Valmy, which is uh, basically it was the time they didn't run away. So uh, up until this point, uh, the French Republican armies have been pretty ineffectual uh, whenever mm. the Prussians and the Austrians had turned up dead-legged, basically. But on this occasion, they outnumbered their enemy, they were well dug in, and the Prussian general, Chuckle Brunswick, didn't fancy his chances, so he retreated. And as, as a result of this, <laughs> they got a bit above them. They were, they were convinced they were going to win the war. Now, that was it. Oh, well, we yeah. seen off the Prussians. So I think a wave of enthusiasm, they also declared war on Britain, the Netherlands and Spain, just so they could be completely surrounded by enemies. This war didn't go especially well for them, but it didn't wasn't wasn't the disaster that everybody hoped it would be, or, or, or rather all their enemies hoped it would be. So 
by 1795, they're looking pretty okay. And they've, um, they've consolidated. They've, they've got most of their enemies chucked out of France. They're moving towards their aim, which uh, was, was to restore, as they say, the natural borders of France. So that's the Alps and the Rhine and the Pyrenees. So everything within that is then France. And they also declared that they were going to export the revolution to anyone else that needed help against tyrants, i.e. we're going to invade everyone who's uh, within, within striking distance. This went on for some time. Obviously, we in Britain were not really interested in this war. It, it, there was nothing in it for us. Uh, and we wanted okay. it to end as quickly as possible. Our, our main interest in Europe at this time was as a market for our goods. And obviously, when there's a massive war going on, that's not going to happen. So our aim throughout was to create stability uh, and hopefully to, to to find someone in France that, that we could treat with, that we, that we could sit down around a negotiating table and thrash out a peace treaty with, which was a bit difficult because yeah, the government yeah. changed on a fairly regular basis. Uh, quite a lot of them ended up... Our government or the French government? The French government. Our government is the same right up until pretty much the end of, 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 the, uh, of the revolutionary period. So um, it's Pitt, Pitt and his mates uh, and, and his family. <laughs> so the nepotism was was the uh, was the word of the day. It really was. So the, the the whole of British government policy is decided pretty much by a group of three to six people, and uh, say two of which are directly related to Pitt, and uh, the others he's pretty chummy with. So you know it's Pitt and and some very close associates are running the whole war. But they, there's no one they can treat with on the other side. You know, there, there isn't a stable government. They can't. It's not like it had been in the early 18th century where you take a bit of their territory, they take yours. As there's battles that everyone took down, and we say, right, okay, we'll give that back if you give it. That didn't happen. Not until Bonaparte. So Bonaparte, for all his, uh, for all the things that, for all the bad things about him, he does bring stability to the republic. And he made it possible for the British government to uh, to treat with France. So in 1802, we had a thing called the, the Peace of Amiens, and the war ended. But that was it. It didn't last very long. Which was good news for all of the characters in the Patrick O'Brien books anyway, because otherwise there would have been nothing to write about. Absolutely. All those half-pay naval officers and all those historians and all those novelists, fortunately for them and unfortunately for uh, for. Pretty much everybody else in Europe, the war resumed. All those things, all those sort of treaty obligations that have been thrashed out at the Peace of Amiens, they, they all fell apart. We accused the French of not fulfilling their side of it. They accused us. One of the things we didn't do was evacuate Malta. <laughs> so that that was that was part of it. And then from then on, we were at war with with France ruled by Napoleon. So that's how that's how we ended up at war with Napoleon. It was basically just a continuation of the war before. The fact that Napoleon was by that point the de facto ruler of France and not long afterwards the emperor of France is, is how we ended up at war with him. As British people, we think of France as being on the opposite side of the channel from us, but the Mediterranean, which is obviously very interesting for lots of the narrative in the Patrick O'Brien books, the Mediterranean was a key part of maintaining a, 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 a naval position against France, wasn't it? Absolutely. It's uh, that the, the, the Mediterranean is, is strategically key. We had Gibraltar, but we needed to get other bases 
in the Mediterranean. It was it was a, it was a it became a policy of the British government to dominate in the Mediterranean. They, they used the phrase naval supremacy. They wanted to have have total dominance of of the Mediterranean because it would enable mm. them to attack at will anywhere in south of france they could uh, support austrian movements in uh, in italy they could either support or attack spain depending whose side they were on because they, they changed sides a few times in the course of the war uh, so mediterranean is key also uh, it, it enables we've got a lot of trade going through there hmm. so it enables us to protect our trade from french privateers who were uh, a bit of a problem throughout the war I mean, there's all, you can talk about naval supremacy, but uh, the, the French managed to, to still be getting uh, privateers who, uh, you know, letters of mark. You know, people who have read the book will be aware of this. They're, they're, they're basically sort of authorised pirates. They don't operate out of the main French naval bases. They, they're, they're generally smaller ships that can operate out of places like Brest, uh, La Rochelle, uh, Dunkirk, smaller ports than, than the places where the... Where the uh, the navy has gained bases and aren't actually being uh, watched by uh, by the by the British Navy, so these people can get out of our trading ships. And I guess them trading out of places other than Toulon means that they're great for frigate actions. So they're great for the adventures of characters like Cochrane, and they're great for the the stories that appear in books like these ones. Yeah. Yes, I mean Nelson at this point is stationed in well, Naples. Naples. When you say Naples, people these days think of the city of Naples. Naples, yeah. in, in our period, is uh, it's a kingdom, and it's called mm. either, either the Kingdom of Naples or the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. At various points, the French sort of rampage through Italy, which is, is an area of Austrian influence. The Neapolitan royal family are Bourbons, mm. so they're related to the former royal family of, of France. So doing them down is always good for the Republic. So, yeah, uh, my enemy's enemy is my friend and all that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So we support them and the French attack them. So <laughs> we build up a big base on Sicily. It's the power base for them. And the, the Bourbon Neapolitan uh, royalty, uh, they've got a, a reasonably sized navy. It's not, it's not, it's not, not a power on ours, but they have a navy. Uh, they have an army. We go and bolster it. They build lots of uh, of defences. So we have a, a good relationship with the Neapolitans, and uh, yeah. and that's where Nelson is for a lot of the war. Yeah, and of course, li- lying in the gateway in the gap between Sicily and, and uh, North Africa, of course, is Malta, isn't it? Yes, yes, very, very important. And uh, for the purposes of your book, uh, Malta is important because of its closeness to North Africa. North Africa at this stage is it's nominally ruled by the ottoman turkish empire but there's a whole range of sort of sultanates and days and all these sort of funny people that you you hear of sort of they they appear in books they're very exotic sounding uh algiers of course there so again there's more pirates there so this is also an area that we in Britain want to uh, want to dominate. We don't want there to be all these uh, Algerian pirates and corsairs swarming around the Mediterranean. We want them to stay stay where they are, and we also want to bolster uh, the Ottomans, uh, depending whose side they are on. Again, <laughs> I was going to say, tell us a little bit about that relationship between Britain and the Ottoman Empire at this time. Kind of, can you give us sort of the little lead up and what's going on sure. here? Sure. Yeah, so the Ottomans they have been a massively powerful 
empire, but they're on a bit of, the, bit of a wane. And mm. in the uh, revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, they're very much a peripheral player. But like all the other peripheral players, uh, both the main parties want to get them on their side. For us, it's very closely connected to which side Russia is on. Ah. So, <laughs> so the, the Russians change sides a few times. The, the Spanish mm-hmm. change sides a few times. And, and the Turks change sides a few times. And the French are always sniffing around the Turks. They, they send emissaries. It's a guy called Sebastiani who goes, uh, goes to Turkey and turns the Turks against us because they've been not particularly useful but fairly consistent allies through the early period of, of this war. And uh, we fought to help them in Egypt. Sir, Sir Sidney Smith has saved Acre. And, you know, we've done, we've done a lot of, we, we fought with them uh, in, in Alexandria. So we're a bit annoyed when they change sides. Uh, it, it's <laughs> largely because the, the French promised the, the Turks they'll support them against the Russians, who they're at that time fighting. They change sides and we we send them a rather nasty series of ultimatums uh, we demand they give various territory to the russians uh, and we demand they give up their fleet we did do this a lot we do it to the danes and uh, a couple of other people we, we we don't like the idea of anyone else having ships <laughs> we sent an army and a fleet to alexandria so we bombarded alexandria a bit and dropped some uh, some soldiers and uh, we captured Alexandria for the second time in, in, in a decade. But then we foolishly decided to send an expedition inland, which, uh, as anyone that's been, will be able to tell you, it's not the most hospitable of territory. In, inland in which direction? Because this, this sounds like a bit of a template for the experiences of, uh, of O'Brien's characters trekking across from, uh, from the Med to Suez. It, it is very much... The general in charge is persuaded that he can take Rosetta, a trog off across the desert. It's a, you know, it's, it's a story you've heard a thousand times with, with different characters. They don't have enough water. They don't have enough food. It all peters out. And by the time they get to Rosetta, they're not really in much of a shape to fight. And it turns out to not be deserted, as they've been told, but it's heavily garrisoned. And they end up surrendering a fairly large number of British soldiers spend uh, the next couple of years uh, in a Turkish prison, which can't be nice, I can imagine. That doesn't sound like fun. It doesn't sound like fun at all. But, uh, as a result of this defeat, we, we pull out Alexandria. And in the meantime, of course, the French haven't helped the Turks one bit. And the Turks decide that, well, they could be magnanimous in, in victory, and they they uh, they sort of grudgingly re-ally themselves. <laughs> so they rejoin uh, our side of the coalition, and that little episode is over. But a certain amount of bad feeling remains. Shall we say <laughs> we don't like being, yeah. and they didn't like the fact that we tried. So uh, you know, that, that's <laughs> a, that's a, but Turkey remains a sort of a strong peripheral player in the sort of strategic game that is Napoleonic Wars. So can I just pick up on this idea of uh, the, the, the perils of, of amphibious operations? Because I, I know you're as much of a military historian as a as a naval or a Napoleonic one. And this is an example of our Patrick O'Brien characters, the naval characters, in, indulging in a bit of boots on the ground. Mm. 
Um, how accurately do you think O'Brien's telling us the story of the connection between soldiers and sailors in the era? How, how did they get on in real life? Uh, not very well, generally. Uh, <laughs> in yeah. fact, pretty, pretty appallingly. Um, it, one of those things, there's a, there's, a, there's a direct conflict between the what we call the, the, the sort of the service cultures of, of the two of the two services. So that the Navy at this period and all its historians and people who like like writing novels about it like to concentrate on all the stuff afloat. Now, yeah. other historians have been... Uh, I've I just been reading before we came on air, in fact, I've just been read it, reading the opinions of one chap who's perhaps gone a little bit far uh, and says it, that our, our, our superiority in this area was a complete myth and that uh, we didn't actually mm. achieve anything uh, with our Navy. It's just really right either but the, the, certainly the navy consider their position to be that their, their role in in any war at this period uh is to seek out and destroy enemy shipping ideally the whole fleet you know if, if we can have a trafalgar every day the navy would have been happy as happy as larry obviously that isn't really how it works and after trafalgar the French Navy uh, retreat to its various uh, fortified harbours and waits it out while the privateers go and flit amongst our naval ships and and uh, and take uh, merchant ships rather and uh, and grab grab whatever loot they can. So um, the Navy's role for most of the war is actually in support of the army. Which is something that they resent quite deeply. <laughs> but they also do. I mean, they do amphibious operations of their own. You know, there's a lot. Uh, Cochrane does a lot of it. Uh, Sidney Smith does quite a bit of it. So they, they they have marines on board and they can arm their their sailors. You know, they've got you've got a reasonable amount. For some of these little outlying posts that the French have, uh, you've got a reasonable sized force for attacking them. If you've got a few ships, you know, you can, you can get like sort of five six hundred men. Uh, so the navy would. Uh, perform their own amphibious operations, but but a true amphibious operation is conducted with the army, and uh, these these were two services that did not get on at all. Mm. So, Phil, um, what else is going on? What might we next see from you in the world of either writing or internet historianing, or what well, else have you got going? I, I, I'm I'm sort of on the back burner at the moment because I am studying for a doctorate on amphibious operations so uh, so uh, i i'm currently reading great stacks literally stacks of books about um naval uh, maritime strategy and theory and i've been looking at all the reasons why amphibious operations are central to british strategy during this period so uh, i've been looking and, and there will be uh, there will be things put out on that from time to time uh, on the military front, I'm doing I'm doing a little talk uh, on I think it's the 17th of April uh, for Hellion Books. I'm doing a talk about uh, the unfortunate General Mack, who was another one of those uh, those characters who pops up in the Napoleonic Wars that uh, yeah, we don't know much about in this country. And uh, hopefully, I'm going to rectify that slightly because uh, I don't speak German. So I, I've looked at his way of, of waging warfare and. Uh, the role of reputation really in in you know how does this chap get such a prominent position how does he get to be directing uh, uh strategy mm. basically for for a vast coalition on um you know 
he's basically on because somebody said that he's he's good. <laughs> mm, well, we can look forward to that. Well, I, you know, I don't know that this is for the show, but having been through that PhD process, I, I wish you the best of luck. There was nothing like learning to think on my knees. Oh, God, I, uh, yes, knees. Yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you think you've got it, and then uh, they come back at you. It's like, oh, what? Exactly. Oh, right. Oh. <laughs> have you read this? Oh, right. Yeah, well, that, that undermines right. everything, doesn't it? Oh, I have to start. It does. Again. It oh. does. At the end of the day, right. I have done a, a great stack of research, and no matter what happens, it's going to be a book or possibly three. Perfect. So, you know, well done. It's not wasting time. Absolutely. Well, Phil, thanks so much. We just love getting the historical context behind this book and being able to, you know, kind of pick up the corners of the rugs to find out what else was going on and and what were the kinds of things O'Brien drew from? What were the other things that give us a better context for this world? We really appreciate your insight and your time. Well, thanks for asking me. As I said to, to, to a gentleman I was talking to the other day, it, it's nice to be able to talk about something that usually makes your friends, colleagues uh, and family roll their eyes. <laughs> oh, God, here he goes again. And here are people actually inviting me to talk about that. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much, Phil. It's been great to have you with us. Thanks no again. problem. So, Mike, great to talk to Philip, wasn't it? Lots of great insights there about the Napoleonic Wars and the context with the Ottoman Empire. I really love that. I love learning more about this, and I love his his energy and enthusiasm for this topic. You know, God bless him for coming on with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Phil. So, meanwhile, we still need to find out what's going to happen with Stephen visiting the Admiral. We need to find out what's going to happen with Stephen and Andrew Ray. And we've got Laura Fielding. I mean, this, you know, we're really getting a lot of compression here on Stephen, on Laura, on Lesur, on, you know, is is Fielding dead? And are, are, is, if that word gets out, then this whole game is up. Absolutely. Mike, I think all we can do at this point is look forward to next week and ask ourselves the question, what do we say to a little more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart. not a relation <laughs> it's much grander uh, selection of balls he he uh, um is part of uh, we're, we're very much uh, uh the uh, the lower end we we, we do appear in a famous uh, history book uh, by uh, a chap called hoskins wg hoskins he was a uh, he was a leading light in uh, doing history in a different way in the 1960s oh. and he wrote a book called the midland peasant <laughs> Uh, we're in that. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's, that's us. But, but uh, based on the idea that there was a famous ball and that he had a connection to this, this period that I love, I, uh, I, I, dragged, uh, I dragged my then partner to the long book.